But the problem with Wesley wasn't that he saved the day all the time, it's that he sounded like a Leave it to Beaver character while he was doing it. Golly gee willikers, Mom, Captain Picard sure is a meanie. Give me a look at the bridge. I promise I won't touch anything. Just wait till I'm all grown up. They'll respect me then, by golly. <laughs> I'm Mark Furinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas-Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. Today we jump into the Guardian of Four... wait, no, some other time portal, with the gang of Lower Decks as they go from 2D to 3D in a crossover with Strange New Worlds. Then it's time to put on a show... Step aside, Queen, because our favorite Space Queen, Spock, is about to belt one out in Subspace Rhapsody. Finally, it's James Tokyo Kirk Drift, as we discuss what fandom gets wrong about the OG Kirk. We're starting our discussions on light-hearted Strange New Worlds Fair with the crossover extravaganza, Those Old Scientists. Ensign Boimler and Mariner are accidentally sent to the past where they encounter the crew of Pike's Enterprise. Together, they deal with exploding experiments and thieving Orions in an attempt to return home without altering the timeline too much. <laughs> Just a smidge. You know, Mark, as we discussed last week, I got to see this at San Diego Comic-Con before anyone else in a room full of 6,000 Trekkies. And I've watched it several times more since because I love a good Star Trek comedy. Some of my favorite episodes of the original are the outright comedies like A Piece of the Action and I Mud. And I love that we just start in the animated world and we're just like, this is what this show is. And then we bookend it with like and Strange New Worlds in the animated form. This entire episode just worked for me from start to finish. What did you think, Mark? Well, we haven't gotten to talk about Lower Decks yet, but it is my favorite of the CBS streaming shows. Despite it being a comedy, it's the show that most feels like the Star Trek that I enjoy. It doesn't want to deconstruct the universe that it's in. It just wants to unironically celebrate it. So even though I was wary of how these two shows would mix in the execution, this was the episode that I was most looking forward to this season. And I gotta say, it didn't disappoint. Yeah, I love bringing in Jack Quaid and Tawny Newsome. I think they did a great job of mimicking the mannerisms of their animated characters while giving both 3D life. Also, they're both super cute. I was totally unprepared for how adorable live action Mariner was. That melts your heart smile like, what? They're totally true to their characters and we even get the Boimler speed walk. Yeah, the show's melded together really well. I think that had a lot to do with the very wise choice of limiting the number of live-action Lower Decks characters. Yeah, yeah. You know, two extremely eccentric characters in a dramatic setting is understandable. It's not too off-putting and out of the realm of believability, but four or six of them would have been overkill. <laughs> it would have been a lot to juggle, for sure. Although I will say that the next time they do a live action crossover, I think it should be Rutherford and Tendi instead. Yeah, yeah. Give everybody a shot. And this is the great thing about casting people who are like the people that you're animating. Yeah. You can actually have the actors on in their roles as opposed to, 
you know, shows of yore where there was supposed race blind casting. Yeah. Right. Which really meant mostly white people doing all the voices. Yeah. Uh, voice work for people of color. Yeah. I remember people got angry because M. Night Shyamalan whitewashed the cast of The Last Airbender, but the cartoon itself was a majority white cast. Yeah, um, which is, I think, a lesson that James Gunn has taken because on his plans for the new DC universe, they're going to cast the voices for these animated shows, but they're casting also for them to play their live action counterparts in whatever film or TV show that they end up doing or not doing. But I like the way that Lower Decks translated into the real world of the Enterprise. They looked very realistic, just like Boimler said, because the Strange New World's costume department really translated those uniforms well. It's the same yet real. They even got the detailing of the Starfleet flying A on the boots. I love that they didn't add texture delta patterns to the tunic so that it would match the, the, the uh, Strange New World's uniforms. Yes, finally plain fabric. Yeah. <laughs> It just looks better to me. Yeah. Those textures, for some reason, from far away, always look like netting yeah. and therefore like football jerseys. Yeah. It, it doesn't come off as something interesting to look at. More cheap somehow. Yeah. It's even worse on superhero outfits, right? Just It doesn't look interesting. It just looks horrible. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, what I think was really well done here, Mark, is that the Lower Decks characters are used as an opportunity to examine our own characters on the show. You know, Spock exploring more of his human side, freaking out boims, and Mariner teaching Uhura to chill a bit. You know, and I love that moment where she fangirls over Uhura. And in a meta way, I think that's a great honor to Nichelle Nichols. And Newsom and Gooding make a great pair. They have great chemistry together. I hope they get to work together in some other future episodes. Because this was a Strange New Worlds episode through and through. It wasn't about the Lower Decks characters. They had a story, but it's just all well-balanced. They didn't just take over Strange New Worlds. Yes, and I think we get peak Ortegas here. You know, she's able to be laid back and fun, but also insightful for once. Yes. This is the first time we see her speaking like a normal adult human being, as opposed to either a, a quip machine or having this kind of childlike tone. Yeah. I'm really glad that she got to shine and help out with the solution. Yeah, me too. I love the scene at the Space Lounge where Mariner's making up the Orion drink and they're, they're solving the problem, but also trying to get Uhura to relax, who's got her like her pad under uh, on her lap. Like we have our cell phones and we're just like trying to hide it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, thematically, I feel like there's a lot of overlap with Star Trek The Next Generation's Matter of Time. You remember the one with Max Hedrum? Yes. In both of them, someone with knowledge of the future or supposed knowledge of the future comes back to fawn over the crew as heroes. And in that one, Picard says he doesn't care about the future because he hasn't lived it yet, yeah. which I think is one of his better lines in the series. And in Strange New Worlds, Boimler comes to a kind of similar conclusion, right? Yeah. But with the perspective of the time traveler, he's willing to change the future because this time period is now his, and he wants to do the best he can by it. Right. And this kind of goes back to the discussion we had in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow over whether Khan should have been killed. 
because Boimler is willing to do what he thinks is right in the moment, as opposed to what is going to make the timeline work out in a way that he recognizes. Right. I think the difference here with tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is that letting Khan die, La'an knew that it would splinter the timeline and Earth would be screwed or whatever. There was a larger thing at stake. And here, this is a smaller thing with the Triticale as opposed to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if it, it, it's just one of those wacky things with time travel. It's either it's a grand thing that can't be changed or has to happen, or it's you can change it. <laughs> it's just timey-wimey. Yeah. I don't think there's a real one is better than the other. Yeah. Just what it serves the story. And to be honest, for me, the time travel plot wasn't all that important because it's all about how our characters interact with the displaced time travelers. And it just serves a function to move the narrative forward. So to me, it was more about the character work that was done in this episode mm -hmm. and how it affected their lives. Like, you know, I got weepy eyed when Una learns more about the pinup poster Boimler has. Mm -hmm. You mean like a pinup poster? It's a poster that is pinned up. And are we saying the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> I also like that this encounter also changes Pike's mind on celebrating his birthday alone. It's about how these Lower Decks characters change our characters and how they relate to each other in a way. And it's less about the mechanics of time travel. Although I do like that Boimler learns, I want to do right with now because now is all we have. Yeah. Touching on the thing with Una, though, I don't know. I found it a little bit scary because what do you do when you find out that your life is literally celebrated in the future? I don't know how you would sleep at night with that kind of knowledge. With um, the Next Generation crew, in a matter of time, they kind of find out that the whole thing is a fraud. So that problem is moot for them. But in Strange New Worlds, these people now know for sure that holidays will be named after them and posters with them will be hanging on walls. And I, I kind of think that's a lot of baggage for someone. Well, this show is all about giving the characters foreknown baggage. I mean, Pike's the perfect example of that. For me personally, if I felt like Una, where I felt like an outsider my entire life, that I had to fight for the right to exist. And I, actually, I am in that fight right now with everything that's going on with the attempt to peel back LGBTQ rights. Yeah. If someone said you're going to be on a poster and people are going to love you and you're going to be celebrated, I don't know, I'd feel good. I'd feel like my life is going to mean something, at least to someone, if not to me. Mm -hmm. Well, as a neurotic, I would be worrying constantly about how I can make that future happen. So, so what we need is a Star Trek episode where a neurotic is told about the great things that they're going to do and then watching them spin out of control. <laughs> yes, exactly. We need original Barkley yeah. in Strange New World who will just go like, ah, I can't take it. <laughs> <laughs> Barkley, you're going to save the universe. but. <laughs> You're going to need to know exactly how. Hope you're up for it. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about Star Trek and genetic determinism, especially when it comes to Spock. Lower Decks is really the only show to hang a lampshade on this problem by having Tendi get angry when people make Orions out to all be pirates. In the teaser, Tendi even says what we say here a lot. If 
aliens are all this, then who's doing the other jobs that make society work? Yeah, who builds the starships? Yeah, whether the Klingon dentist. <laughs> no, I want the Klingon podiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> there is no honor in foot fungus. <laughs> but, you know, Lower Decks is actually equally guilty of reducing characters to their race. I'm thinking about that second season episode, Wei Dudge, for instance, that was really hampered by a lot of Vulcans do this, Klingons do that, to the point that both species seemed almost incapable of existing. Like the Vulcans said something about curiosity is an emotion, and I was thinking, what? So what I'm getting at here is that Trek seems to know reduction of speciesism is the same thing as racism, but they do it anyway. Yeah, I don't have an answer to you. Um, the, <laughs> o- the only thing I can think of is, is that in that Lower Decks episode, I think it was, there's always someone that bucks the tradition and there's always those people that will tell you, no, this is the way things are done traditionally and you have to act and fall in line. To which, yeah. yes, there is that racial determinism, that sort of racism there, but there's also a little bit of a cultural thing because I know myself in my own culture, I had been up against that early on in college when I was part of a Filipino-American student group, and I wanted to do things differently, and I kept being, no, this is the way it's done. This is the way we do it traditionally, and this and that. So that's the way I took that episode, but I do agree. There is a lot of that in Star Trek, especially with Spock. It's forced on Spock to be one or the other, and when he has to be one or the other, he has to be this sort of narrow-minded view of what that is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see that take on the Lower Decks episode. It's just that they're just so non-functional the way that they are. That, like, their traditions rendered them not capable of being a species. Well, I will say, if I were to pick a worst offender, though, in Lower Decks, it'd probably have to be the Packlids. But then the Packlids are just a comedic (laughs) device, right? So it's kind of like, you're like, eh, I like that they're funny and stupid, but at the same time, you're like, can they all be that way? And how did they ever get spaceships other than stealing technology? <laughs> Somebody must have crashed on the planet and they just beat them with sticks and took the ship. Like, like, like who is the Packlid urologist? <laughs> <laughs> they certainly make people go. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but I did really like that subplot about not judging a culture by one aspect. And I liked at the end, you know, the Orion guy was like, yes, that's what we all, we always wanted. He was kind of like, you know, got a little tear in his eyes. And, you know, maybe they're like the scientists of old empires. They just steal what they find instead of saying they discovered it. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I absolutely love that portion of the episode. I want to see more of that all the time everywhere. Oh, I totally agree. That should be... The reigning philosophy of Star Trek is, right. hey, that's not what we're all like. Right. And and that's what Ad Austria was all about. Mm-hmm. And we get some of that here. And I, yeah, I would totally love to see more of that because there's any one big aspect of Star Trek that is prevalent is questioning one's own negative bias mm-hmm. and accepting others for who they are and not what they are. Mm. Well, our discussion of slap happy Strange New Worlds episodes continues with subspace rhapsody. Experimenting with a subspace riff causes the Enterprise and the entire sector to break into songs that reveal their 
deepest personal feelings. The crew must find a way to stop the galactic show tunes for the Klingons arrive and obliterate everyone affected on both sides. I think a lot of people were dreading this episode, myself included, but it wasn't too bad. I like musicals in general, especially comedic ones, so I was able to shut my brain off and enjoy this as a pretty well-directed and choreographed show. I don't think I'm going to be singing any of these songs around the house, though. None of them really wormed their way into my ear. The most interesting musically was Chapel's song, I'm Ready. It had a very Amy Winehouse sound to it. Yeah, I'm not that big a fan of musicals. I'm very particular about them. And I've seen plenty of them in the theater. The musicals I like are like Rent, which have Star Trek alums, Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz and different companies of that. The Umbrella is a Cherbourg, which is a Jacques Demy film, which is melancholy and lame is. So I like, I like my musicals with a little bit of a dour note. We can't go to the theater together, Ryan. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. And even though I've never seen the musical episode of Buffy or any other genre shows, I really enjoyed the hell out of this one. I like Star Trek when it's silly. I appreciate that this era of Star Trek is willing to experiment, even when it isn't for everyone. Disco challenged what Star Trek could be in the 2010s. Picard aspired to be something more like Game of Thrones in its first season and was a mixed bag. Lower Decks gave us a true Star Trek workplace comedy. Prodigy gave us a kid's show that's more Star Trek than Star Trek. Say Prodigy now, by the way. And now Strange New Worlds is pushing the tried and true Star Trek weekly format in every episode. And I'm here for it. I am absolutely here for it. You know, there's some subspace chatter that has been mostly positive, but there's a few who said it wasn't for them. And I grabbed that. But doing different, more daring things is what's going to keep this franchise fresh. I don't want to go back to another 20 years of stale Star Trek where they're just churning out episodes and films like they're Big Macs. Yeah, I would rather watch a comedy that doesn't quite work than a really high-stakes drama that totally just doesn't come across. That, to me, is a bigger failure. When you're trying to be serious and you're trying to send a message and it, it doesn't land because you, you don't really get what you're trying to say. Or, or it's just another one of those, um, you know, just a techno-babble exercise, a puzzle box. Much like the crossover, the gimmick here is used to tell us more about the inner lives of our characters. All the songs are about the crew's inner desires or concerns. Uhura, La'an, Chapel Souls were fantastic examples of that. Even Spock being the X in the equation is well done. Yes. Celia Gooding is, of course, the standout here. By the way, did you know that she's a Grammy-winning Broadway star? Yes, and I believe that's for the Alanis Morissette Broadway translation of Jagged Little Pill. I didn't know that. I was yeah. ignorant. Uh, Fluffy had to point it out to me last night. So, yeah, and there's, there's clips of her singing those songs, and I actually prefer her, uh, isn't it ironic, over Alanis Morissette's. <laughs> yeah, they're probably the, the only one that doesn't have auto-tune. Yeah. If there's anyone who should be singing on a regular basis, it's definitely Okura. That's what she does. She sings. And uh, I, would, I would love to see more of Sheila Gooding singing on this show. I would really love to see Uhura singing in every episode from here on out. 
I mean, they have the Space Lounge set and they have a jazz band. Let Uhura sing every episode. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You have a talent like that. You you should use it, especially if the character has precedence. Yeah, and I lament that, except for one or two occasions, Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz haven't really sung on Discovery. Yeah. You got Broadway talent. Let's use the Broadway talent. <laughs> I totally agree. And Christina Chung is no come-lately singer. She has an album out right now. And her solo damn near broke my cold, dead star of a heart. <laughs> Especially as someone who also holds their true romantic feelings close to the chest. Yeah. I want La'an to be happy. Is that too hard to ask? <laughs> She's the whoopee. Yeah, she's the whoopee, yes. Although I wish that uh, when Jim was gently turning her down, that that was a musical number. I felt like that was a missed opportunity. It should have been like light my candle and rent or something. You know, they just, just felt like a missed opportunity there for another great musical number. Yeah, that's true. Because I mean, if this thing is brought about because people have intense feelings, that would have been the moment for them to break out into song. Exactly, exactly. So um, Glenn Weldon of Pop Culture Happy Hour made a point that I really disagree with, that Gooding's Uhura is becoming the Wesley Crusher of the show. Oh, hell no. Yeah, because she saved the day here and in Lost in Translation. And, you know, I, I love you, Glenn, but you've never been more wrong. Gooding's Uhura is legitimately clever and hardworking on the, what, three times she's been the center of the show's plot? I think she's really earned her payoff. Yeah, it's been 55 years, and we've only had three episodes where Ahura is the center of it, and she gets to you know, solve the problem and, and move the story along. Give her her due. It's not like she was saving the ship in the original series all the time. She deserves the spotlight, and we're finally getting Ahura in the spotlight. And if Strange New Worlds has done anything else, that is the thing that I am most grateful for. And honestly, I'm a Wesley Crusher apologist. Well, you know, what always frustrated me about Wesley was that they had Will Wheaton, who was a very talented child actor, and they just gave him Drek to deliver. Just off of Stand By Me. Yeah, and I'm like, you could do more with this character. He can act. You're just giving him crap to say. Yeah. They wrote him like adults writing teenage characters. They didn't write Wesley as a person. So I knew back in the beginning of this season, when Chapel mentioned that she was supplying for residencies, that Roger Corby was going to show up. The question now is, will Chapel leave the show, or is Corby going to be added to the cast and her and Spock's love polygon of rapidly multiplying sides? <laughs> I was talking with my friend Hannibal about this. Who's going to be on the show next week? Yeah. Does this mean that Jess Bush and Chapel are leaving the show? And he's like, well, no, they said it's only a three-month internship. And I was like, oh, okay, so she'll be back. So probably what's going to happen is Spock will be back with T'Pring. Chapel will be engaged to Roger Corby. Corby will come on the show. T'Pring will come on the show. There will be some sort of Spock hijinks episode around that. And then Kirk will come in to fuck all that shit up. It's a love pentagon. So, you know, we'll probably also get Carol next season since uh, she got name checked this episode with a baby bump, which, you know, kind of figures in the timeline. And there's one thing that, you know, and I don't know, maybe I got to stick in my butt over this, but I keep seeing that 
on subspace chatter that Strange New Worlds has somehow turned Kirk into an absentee father. But it seems like Jim is just unsure how it's going to work out in this episode. And I get that fear given what we know about his own childhood and father always being away. And I think for me, why this kind of is a sticking point is because I spent my childhood with a father overseas on deployment. Did that make him an absentee father? No. Does it make George Kirk Sr.? No. Or Sam Kirk, who canonically has a wife and three kids at this time? No. Does that make Jim Kirk? We'll never know because Carol, as we later learn, made the decision to keep Kirk out of David's life. Growing up military, or in my case, Navy, ain't easy. But because my dad served doesn't mean he loved me any less or purposely avoided being my father. And that's kind of what I saw was going on here. And, you know, maybe Carol later shuts him out because she knows the strain he endured as a child. Yeah, it definitely makes sense now that they mentioned in Lost in Translation that Kirk's dad was always away with the service when he was a kid because it shows a repeating pattern. Yeah, but that's that's the military life. And it doesn't make them any less family men for it. Mm-hmm. And to to think that that means that someone's an absentee father, just it rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. So um, back on the romantic drama front, we got more Pike and Patel this week. And since this is a musical episode, I'm going to make a Crazy Ex-Girlfriend reference. Patel desperately wants to go to Raging Waters, but Pike hates everything but her. I know the lesson of this vacation spat is that Pike should be more open and honest, but can't this guy just freaking bite the bullet and do something that she wants for once? Like, this woman changes her missions to go meet up with him wherever he is constantly. Her whole crew probably knows whenever they rendezvous with the Enterprise, she's getting laid. But he never gives an inch. Yes, he does. If she's getting laid, he gives lots of inches. <laughs> Six at most. <laughs> like Margaret Cho says, when she goes to Subway, she doesn't want the whole foot long. She says, give me half of that. <laughs> Michelle Wolf has a similar joke like that, too. <laughs> where she says, I can't, I can't take more than six inches. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to take a second for us to recover from. <laughs> You know, going to the beach is not my favorite thing in the whole world, Ryan, but I go to the beach all the time because my wife does not consider it a vacation unless she swims. And she makes sure that we see cities and archaeological crap as well because she likes those things too. And that's a relationship. Pike is not in a relationship. He's just making constant demands. I agree with you. I think Pike is very paternal. To Patel. And I don't really care for that. I, I get that Pike has a whole space daddy vibe to him when it comes to the crew. But I think with Patel, it's just it doesn't feel like a partnership. And it goes back to that. I just think the relationship is boring. Um, but also yeah. she in danger, girl. I mean, he said priority one mission at the end, and I was like, she in trouble. I tell you, I find Patel as interesting as a wet newspaper, but I don't want a refrigerated girlfriend trope on this show. Yeah, I agree. And I'm going to be really upset if if they do that. I agree. And, you know, I don't think the actress is bad. I really just think the material that she's given to perform against Anson Mount is just 
it just doesn't work for me. And I, I don't mean that to disparage the, the intent of the show. It's just, it just, there's just no chemistry for me there that works. I don't know what the relationship is that Pike wants out of this. Yeah, because they're writing a guy who's like, I don't want to go to that planet. I want to go camping. Why won't you go camping? And that's the sum total of their friction with one another. And it's just this week after week after week, he's just sort of this mamby-pamby kind of jerk. And she's just kind of, well, uh, all right. Yeah, because like the last time was like, oh, we got to break up. No, I don't want to break up. You know, like it was not her decision at all in that episode, which I did not care for. No. If we were going to do a story where Pike has to be honest with her, I really wish it was tied to his fate. That's what they're getting at. But I wish that was there to begin with. Like, I wish this was what yeah. this was about and not about camping versus going to a museum. Well, we have been reacting to a lot of other people's comments on this episode and, and Star Trek in general. And that's going to lead us into the next segment where we discuss an article that was written about James Tiberius Kirk. Collider this week proclaimed that Strange New Worlds has given James T. Kirk something he's never had. Empathy. What? All this under the headline, Star Trek Strange New World Season 2 gives Kirk something he's been missing. Paul Wesley plays a Kirk made for the 23rd century. I mean, it just starts off with a summation of Kirk Drift, the pop culture version of James Kirk that we mostly see in later 80s movies and definitely in the J.J. Abrams films. A shameless playboy who just breaks the rules on a whim and uses his fist to solve problems. But, you know, I will be fair, the article does state that Kirk has a strong moral compass. But I'm just puzzled by this article saying Kirk has no empathy or isn't emotional or vulnerable, at least not until the Paul Wesley version. Again, Kirk drift in full effect. Because Wesley, from his interviews and his performance, he gets Kirk. He knows that those qualities has always been there in the character. I mean, this is a man who is literally split in two in the original series, meeting his worst self, who he has to hug and accept to become whole again, even though he's disgusted by that side of him. Yeah, that article really took me by surprise because, for one, you wouldn't think anyone would write such a thing with a straight face after Aaron Horakova's Kirk Drift article on the Strange Horizons, but also because we've been discussing for weeks now that Wesley's Kirk is the closest to Shatner's because he's empathetic and emotional, mm -hmm. something that was really missing in Pine's version of the character mm -hmm. because that was really a frat boyish stereotypical take. Mm -hmm. I'm not sold on Wesley's physicality. You know, I don't see Kirk when I look at him. Pine's Kirk wins on that front, but I definitely feel Kirk and Wesley's performance. And I, I feel like the writer had a thesis that the 60s only produced stoic, macho male heroes and tweaked the evidence to fit it. At one point, she tries to say that Kirk spares the Gorn not out of compassion, but because he wanted to spite the Metrons. And that's just wild. Yeah, that's a complete misread of that episode. Yeah. You'd have to ignore the fact that Kirk spared the Horta while Spock is yelling, kill it, in his ear. Right. 
Catherine said it perfectly in our interview last week. Kirk is not a macho 60s man. He's soft and respectful and emotional. Right. And even in the second episode that Kirk is in, the first full production episode of The Cobra Night Maneuver, they could have just left Baylock to drift. And Kirk says explicitly that we're going to go back. This is our mission. We'll help this person. And, you know, that's kind of atypical of a lot of those stoic 60s heroes who would just blow the shit up and leave. I mean, even in his first episode, Kirk shows incredible empathy for others around him. He wrestles over whether to kill the newly God-powered Gary Mitchell until it's too late. He's self-aware of his own emotions. He's highly emotional intelligent and only breaks orders when it means saving the life of his crew. I mean, he believes in risk, but he's smart and calculated about it. And he fesses up when he makes a mistake and spends the whole episode correcting it. And Kurt connecting with both Uhura and La'an is well within his wheelhouse uh, of the classic version of the character. He reaches out to Charlie X. He connects with Edith Keeler, even though he knows she's doomed to die. He shares a bond with Miri, feels a kinship with the Romulan commander, and he laments the death of the salt vampire. Something wrong, Captain? I was thinking about the buffalo, Mr. Spock. Not to mention all the empathy he has for Spock. Yeah. This is a guy who gets down on his knees in near tears for every red shirt that ever bit it under his command. And I'm thinking especially of the Apple and by any other name, Kirk doesn't rarely open up to McCoy. McCoy, as a character, is there for Kirk to open up to. He exists just like Boyce did for Pike to be an emotional sounding board. And we see it, especially in Balance of Terror, where Kirk is truly concerned about what he's about to put his crew through. And when Kirk is wrong about something, McCoy changes his mind by literally appealing to Kirk's empathy. Yeah, this is a man who is so emotionally aware of himself. It's like that scene in The Conscience of the King, right? No, logic is not enough. I've got to feel my way. Yeah, and that speaks to the way that he deals with trauma. And, you know, in Conscious of the King, he wrestles with revealing Caridian as Kodos, not because of some sense of moralism, but because he doesn't want to destroy this man if he's innocent. And he uses his shared trauma with Kevin O'Reilly to talk the kid out of pretty much executing Kodos on the stage. And then in Obsession, he comes to grips with the fact that trauma is driving his selfish need to kill the vampire cloud when he sees his own guilt reflected in Garavik's. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I can only think of that, you know, in the scene in Balance of Terror too, like he's worried that he's going to be wrong and what that means for his crew and, and possibly even the Romulan's crew. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, another mistake that the article makes is saying Shatner's crew constantly like to disobey orders. Like you said, before search for Spock, I can only Recall Kirk doing that twice, once when he took Spock to Vulcan in a muck time, and in Conscious of the King, when he went off route to deliver the Caridian troop to Benicia. And that, that's it, right? Right, yeah. You know, he doesn't cavalierly disobey orders. He only does it when the crew is in danger, even in A Taste of Armageddon. You know, he kind of bent orders because the crew is in danger. He'll only really bend or break the rules when it lies are at stake. And not just his own. 
Yeah, and in the case of A Taste of Armageddon, he's keeping an ambassador from killing himself. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, most of the time, Kirk can't even disobey orders if he wants to, because the ship is never within communications range of, of Starfleet. No, and that's the whole trope of the show. Yeah, you can accuse him of being a lone actor, but not disobedient. But also, and I think this is also my problem with modern Trek and having them phone an admiral or Zoom call an admiral or show up at Starbase One every other week. The whole premise of the show was that Kirk, like the captains of the Age of Sail, were the representatives of their government and were given wide latitude to interpretation the regs based on their own decision-making and the situation before them. Yeah, and like we talked about in the Strange New World season opener this year, it's usually the captains that are disobedient that are the problems in Star Trek, like Ron Tracy. Disobeying orders leads to authoritarianism. Yeah. Rules are there for a reason, and I don't think we'd like Kirk if he really was the kind of person who was breaking the rules nonstop. Right, and the Omega Glory in that entire episode, it's about him doing what regulations mandate. Even Ron Tracy makes fun of him for saying it. You know, you said what you had to say according to the rules. You're safe now, Jim. <laughs> you know, he kind of taunts Kirk with it. Yeah, and Kirk is like, no, I believe in this, buddy. Yeah, you I may not, but I do. He believes firmly in the service and what it means to, to others. He doesn't just cavalierly do things. He takes risk, but he's not this, you know, rogue, this unknown factor that's just going to be like a loose cannon. He's not a maverick. Yeah. By any means. That's it for this week. I'm Ryan Rillager. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all her work on sockpuppet.us, and you can find me on Trek Comic on Twitter. And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with? Open a hailing frequency to us. You can find the podcast on Twitter too, at Shipful of Jerks, and also on Blue Sky. Yes, we're all on Blue Sky now. Come find us. So Paul Thomas Anderson came up with this game. If you hear the title of something spoken in dialogue, like Those Old Scientists or Ad Astra Spera, you yell out, Bukak! as loud as you possibly can. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a drinking game. No, it's better, because you can play it with the kids, and I encourage everybody to give it a try. The people you're watching with will love it, I assure you. <laughs>